Everyone, it's great to see you here tonight. Thanks for coming out. Thank you to each one who participated in our service already tonight. Certainly enjoyed the music and all that took place. Tonight is going to be a bit of review, summarization, hopefully some clarifying statements as we go forward in looking at biblical material that will address key issues of postmodernism. But uh, I know a number of people were not able to be with us two weeks ago. Last week, we had a break from this. Uh, I know that there's been some ongoing uh, questions, so I thought it's review and summary time tonight, and then uh, we will look at the scripture uh, in detail from now on. But uh, introduction. Postmodernism and pluralism are having profound effects upon our society and the world. I hope to point out some of those effects tonight. Postmodernism and pluralism are not merely phenomena of the United States. Postmodernism is primarily a product of Europe that has spread to the rest of the world. Uh, someone had asked about uh, postmodernism, remembering that postmodernism simply refers to an era, post, after, modern. After the modern era comes the postmodern era. It's not a fad, but an age. Premodernism existed to the end of the Middle Ages with the dawn of the Enlightenment. Modernism ruled the world of thought from the Enlightenment to the late 1900s. People have asked, is there an overlap? Uh, certainly, there's a huge overlap in modernism and postmodernism in this time in which we live. Um, certainly, we encounter some people that have a, a, a very postmodern mindset. We would encounter in our circle many more people that would have a modern mindset. But in academia is a place where there's tremendous overlap. Uh, I have said that uh, it, uh, modernism ruled the world of thought from the Enlightenment to the late 1900s. A lot of people talk in terms of the 1970s. Uh, I mentioned last week that the 1940s is another big uh, focal point of postmodernism because it's, it's when a couple of the postmodern philosophers began to write in the 1940s. It took a while for that to take effect, and uh, it's had a pro profound effect on, on uh, France. You talk to any missionaries where they'll tell you that France is very much a post-modern country today. It's where uh, the uh, philosophers like Foucault originated. They had a profound, profound influence on France. France had a profound influence on, on Britain, and in particular Cambridge and Oxford. And Cambridge and Oxford are bastions of uh, postmodernism. Graduates come out of there, usually have a uh, very postmodern bent. I mentioned President Clinton as a, as a graduate of Oxford as an example of that. Uh, the graduates of Oxford have, have had a profound influence on the Ivy League uh, uh, schools in our um, United States. Uh, the most pre prestigious degree you can have today is from, is from Oxford. And that is certainly true in the area of theology. The most prestigious degree is from uh, Oxford, if you have your doctor from Oxford. And so many of uh, seminaries today have at least somebody on their staff 
that's an Oxford grad and uh, probably has a pretty postmodern influence on uh, that particular uh, institution. So, postmodernism gradually appearing in the 1970s will almost assuredly last for decades to come, if not centuries. Some people have said, well, this is a fad. Well, most of these philosophical movements have not turned out to be fads. In fact, they have turned out to be movements that have lasted hundreds of years, and probably postmodernism is like that. It's a, it's a, a real change of thinking that is most likely going to have uh, growing influence in decades and in centuries to come. Most people think that modernism is definitely on its way out. So summary review. Postmodernism and pluralism exist side by side. They are corollaries of each other. This means that pluralism has not produced postmodernism and postmodernism has not produced pluralism. Rather, the two feed off each other and strengthen each other, establishing an atmosphere in which both can flourish. One of the reasons that postmodernism is taking off is because of pluralism. And one of the reasons that pluralism is taking off is because of postmodernism. They go hand in hand very well. The concepts uh, integrate extremely well. At the heart of postmodernism is truth is subjective as opposed to objective. Truth comes from within as opposed from without. At the heart of philosophical pluralism, truth exists everywhere in part and nowhere as a whole. Now that's very, very important to keep in mind. Truth exists everywhere in part and nowhere as a whole. At the heart of Christianity, truth is objective. It's out there. It's not inside. It's out there. And it exists out there in a whole. And that whole is God. God has full and complete knowledge. Now, that's important. And it's important for us as, as evangelicals to realize that the Bible is not the source of all truth. Now, before you stone me, all I'm simply saying there is there is truth that exists that doesn't exist in this book. This book tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness. But the scripture is clear that we won't know all things until we are in the presence of God. So, all truth resides in God. There are things that I would like to know that I can't find in the Bible. That the Bible doesn't answer. Such as, why is there evil? We try to come up with those answers, but they really become philosophical. You can't point to a chapter in verse and answer every question. But the Bible teaches us that one day we will know all things. We will know fully even as we are fully known. So all truth exists somewhere, and that is with God. Everything in this Bible is true, because God is true, and this book comes from God. But God hasn't told us everything. There are mysteries out there. Okay, moving on. Uh, let's go to Roman number one. Postmodernism has exposed many of the weaknesses of modernism. Postmodernism has revealed the fallacy of strictly efficient causes. One cannot explain the complexities of this world solely by a naturalistic cause and effect. More simply put, science doesn't answer every question. And we aren't going to know every answer as a result of science. Postmodernism has rediscovered a spiritual or mystical element to reality. 
There is more to this world than what meets the eye. Postmodernism accepts spirituality. Postmodernism accepts that there is something out there. And without that something, we don't have an explanation. Now, that something may not be the biblical God. That may be some other manifestation, some other religious belief. But the point is, religion is back in vogue. That a belief in a higher power is back in vogue. The idea that, that there is a providence at work, or at least a fatalism. But there is something more than just mere cause and effect. There is something more to this world than what can be explained through science. There has to be a higher power being that's back in vogue. So, postmodernism has demonstrated that obtaining truth is more than just applying the method. Postmodernism has bred a despair in the midst of an eternal optimism. I'll talk about that more in just a moment. So, Roman numeral two. The influences of postmodernism on our modernistic society at a more philosophical or academic level. Postmodernism has produced or perhaps identified a despair in many disciplines of our society. We have given up on the idea that through our reason, we can come to understand everything and solve every problem. That sense of despair. That has led to some a sense of hopelessness. Uh, we can't answer Every problem, every question. There was a time in modernism when we thought that science could uh, answer every question. But, number two, as illustrated by God and the astronomers, this is a book written by Robert Jastrow. Now you may say, who's Robert Jastrow? Well, Robert Jastrow is an internationally known astronomer an authority on the life of the cosmos. He is the founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies and professor of astronomy and geology at Columbia University. So we're talking about a well-qualified man, uh, founder of NASA. Okay? What else is interesting is he is an agnostic. He says he doesn't know spiritual things. He's not a believer by any means. He's not a Christian. But he's written some very interesting things. Okay? So, from a non-Christian scientific standpoint, listen to, what, listen to what he says. Theologians generally are delighted with the proof that the universe had a beginning. He's talking about the Big Bang. And the idea that the Big Bang is now universally accepted. Okay? That, that there was a beginning to this world as we know it. Uh, he says, but astronomers are curiously upset. Their reactions provide an interesting demonstration of the response of the scientific mind, supposedly a very objective mind, when evidence uncovered by science itself leads to a conflict with the articles of faith, interesting terminology, in our profession. And it turns out that the scientist behaves the way the rest of us do when our beliefs are in conflict with the evidence. We become irritated. We pretend the conflict does not exist. Or we paper it over with meaningless phrases. Now, listen to his concluding remark. Now, I've jumped from the very beginning of this book to the very end. He's been talking about the Big Bang. He's been talking about the scientific uh, 
aspects of it, he reaches this conclusion. The scientist's pursuit of the past ends in the moment of creation. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, to which St. Augustine added, Who can understand this mystery or explain it to others? The development is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. We have been able to connect the appearance of man on this planet to the crossing of the threshold of life, the manufacture of the chemical ingredients of life within stars that have long since expired, the formation of those stars out of the primal mists, and the expansion and cooling of the parent cloud of gases out of the cosmic fireball. Now we would like to pursue that inquiry further back in time, but the barrier to further progress seems insurmountable. It is not a matter of another year, another decade of work, another measurement, or another theory. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. That's the despair. Science can never explain where matter came from. It simply states it always existed. It can never explain where it came from. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. That's a very interesting take on science. And the result is that it is becoming more and more acceptable in scientific circles to begin to talk about biblical creationism. And there's actually movements that say this ought to be taught side by side. Which never would have happened in a modern era. But because of pluralism and the need to validate differing viewpoints and differing points of view, and the idea of postmodernism, of a source of knowledge and truth. You put those two things together, and there are actually people saying, not Christians, but other people saying, you know, we really ought to teach these things side by side. It's an interesting outcome. B, postmodernism has proposed a new understanding of gathering truth as opposed to a method of obtaining truth. The emphasis in postmodernism is the community as a definer of truth, as opposed to the individual as a definer of truth. This is illustrated in a new approach to history. Postmodernism is called into question the process of gaining understanding from original sources. Why? Because you're biased. Nobody comes to these original sources without baggage, without preconceived ideas, without experiences. And so, the old idea that you studied history by looking at original sources, by looking at what, what the person wrote, or by looking at dates and times and experiences in that person's life, it has moved from studying original sources to postmodern emphasize the studies of views of history, as opposed to the study of history itself. So you don't study the history, you don't study the dates and the facts, you study what people say about the dates 
and the facts. You, you study points of view about history. Two, uh, issues related to the community as the establisher of truth. The way truth is gathered as opposed to discovered. Examples of pros and cons for the community as an establisher of truth. Okay. So, truth comes collectively as opposed to individually. One of the phenomena, uh, phenomenon that is taking place in our society. Okay, you want to talk about modernism and postmodernism hitting head on. The classic example is Wikipedia. How many people know what Wikipedia is? Would you raise your hand so I know what? Okay, a lot of you are familiar with Wikipedia. Wikipedia is an encyclopedia, if you will, that's found online. You go online and uh, you can look up virtually anything in Wikipedia. The controversy is, is Wikipedia a good source in order to have authoritative statements on anything? Is Wikipedia reliable? If you're a modernist, you're going to say no. Because, number one, you don't know who the contributors are to Wikipedia. You don't know if they have a doctorate or if they're a sixth grader. You don't know anything about their credentials. You don't know anything about them as an individual. And so you need to know that. This person has to have a doctorate if they're going to have an authority. Uh, you can't have somebody with an authority who doesn't have his doctorate. So the modernist would say, no, no, Wikipedia is bad. That's not a good place to go for information. If you're a postmodernist, actually Wikipedia becomes the best place you can look for information. Why? Because it has over a million contributors. There are so many different points of view that if, if you can get a consensus, if you can get agreement as to what is taking place, there is nothing more authoritative than that. There is nothing more reliable than that. Here is universal agreement as to what is being taught. So postmodernists say, it's the best source of information that you have today. And modernist says, it's garbage. It's junk. You can't rely upon that. You want to get a good debate going in academic circles is get people together and bring up Wikipedia. Now, you know, my, my point tonight is not to bring up uh, controversial stuff. My point is, it's like in Paul's day. He knew that he was going to get people worked up when he talked about the resurrection. Because the Pharisees say there is no resurrection. And the, uh, excuse me, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. The Pharisees say there is. Well, if you get a postmodern academician, <laughs> Wikipedia is the way to go. If you got a modernist academician, it's, it's junk. And that shows, I think, very simply to what many people encounter day by day, as the effects of postmodernism on our society. C. Postmodernism has replaced an evidential epistemology with a presuppositional epistemology. Epistemology is simply the way of knowing. Number one, this has produced a tremendous elitism. Views are valued not because of their logical argument or their evidential support, but because of who holds the view. People are valued more highly than what truth is.
Let's uh, jump down to Arabic 3 there, uh, number 3. This is also contributed to our present understanding of tolerance. In postmodernism, one cannot attack a viewpoint without attacking the person. If you don't remember anything else tonight, remember that one. In postmodernism, you can't attack a viewpoint without attacking the person. To disagree with an individual is to belittle them in postmodernism. It's not to value their opinion. You can't have a debate in postmodernism. In modernism, you have a debate all the time. In fact, there used to be such things as debating teams. Remember debating teams? And you would score. You'd win, you'd lose, based on your development of the argument. Was it logical? Did it progress? Did you prove your point? And you could actually win or lose a debate. In postmodernism, you can't debate something. Because you can't agree on the process. You can't agree on the fact. You can't agree on anything except to value the other person. Which makes it very tough for Christianity. Because if you're going to disagree with somebody's view of salvation or the Bible or whatever, automatically you're mean, you're narrow-minded, you're fault-finding, you're critical, it becomes very, very hard to talk about truth because you have some of the truth, I have some of the truth, and if you don't acknowledge that, why, then you are just a miserable, rotten person. B. That carries with it a double-sided sword. Because it produces two negative effects. First, it causes people to be defensive. It causes people to be easily offended. When they put forth an idea that someone else doesn't agree with. Because they see it as an attack. They, they see it as an affront. They see it as you don't like me. You don't appreciate me. You don't value me. So that when you are in a meeting or in some other area in which... There tends to be disagreement. It's painful. It's painful. And so many people don't want to be disagreeable because they're going to be viewed as narrow, thought-finding, and so on. And the other double-edged sword is, unfortunately, the attack comes by not attacking the individual but the, but the person. If the person is held in high esteem and their value is in their person, and people follow them because of who they are, not because of the logic of what they say, the only way to undermine that person is to attack the person themselves, not their ideas. And so you see this played out every day on talk radio. Think about it. Think about it. In order to prove one's point, one attacks the individual who holds a contrary viewpoint. There really isn't a presentation that is factual of here are the, the issues and decide them for yourself. Now, people say they do that, but the reality is it doesn't happen. 
there is an attack, an undermining of the person who holds a contrary viewpoint. You don't want to follow them, they're stupid. You don't want to follow them, they're liberal. You don't want to follow them, they're conservative. You don't want to follow them, they're this, they're that. And you just call them names rather than dealing with what they are presenting. Okay. So B, back up top of page three. B. Man, I've got to fly. B. Um, it is difficult to see one willing to defend the truth, let alone to die for the truth. Uh, turn with me to the, the last page. Battle Hymn of the Republic. Uh, what I've done here is I've taken the Battle Hymn of the Republic and in normal print is the Battle Hymn of the Republic as you know it. In dark print is the, is the Battle Hymn of the Republic as it was ori- originally written. Okay. So the first verse is the same. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Okay, so here, if you're on the right side, you're on God's side, and you're on the side of truth. Okay, that's the first stanza of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. I've seen in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps, they have built him an altar uh, in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps as day is marching on. Next verse that doesn't appear in your hymnal. I read a fiery gospel written, burnished rows of steel, as you deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of a woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. Then the chorus, okay. He has sounded forth the, the trumpet, that's the same. The next chorus, that's the same. Let's look at the next verse. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. With a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. What does our hymnal say? Live. Let us live to make men free. Wherever you hear the battle hymn of the Republic sung today, it's got the words live. That's not how it was originally written. And you see, the reason it wasn't originally written that way is because you couldn't make men holy without Christ dying. He had to die. And the battle hymn of the Republic was given as an inspiration of going to war because you have to die for some things. You have to die for truth. You have to die for being on God's side. There are some things that you have to die for. That is so foreign to our concept that we change the words. To the point where they're nonsensical. The comparison is faulty. As he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. You see. And then the last stanza, and I won't go into that. So, there is virtually nothing to die for. Today, um, I'm trying to edit here as I as I go. Um, it's interesting what what history does with John Calvin. 
John Calvin, of course, you know, is a theologian. Uh, what you may or may not know about John Calvin is that uh, he was also the uh, leader, political leader, of Geneva. Because uh, there was a union of church and state in, in Geneva. So he was not only the leader of the church, he was also the political leader. And there was a man by the name of Servetus that John Calvin had killed. Boy, you want to get an interesting perspective on history. Read history's take on John Calvin putting Servetus to death. The reason John Calvin put Servetus to death was he had warned Servetus, who was a teacher of theology, who denied the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he gave him a warning. You can get out of Geneva, or you can quit teaching this heresy, or you can stay in Geneva and die. Well, Servetus decided not to leave Geneva. He decided not to quit preaching the heresy, and so he died. John Calvin had him put to death. John Calvin, in justifying his actions, said, if we're going to take the life of one who merely takes the physical life of another, how much more should we take the physical life of one who robs the other of his spiritual life? John Calvin saw Servetus as a person who was not destructive just for this world, but for the world to come. And because of Servetus, men would die in hell. That concept is totally foreign to us today. We have a real difficult time in understanding why anybody would even stand up for the truth, let alone die for the truth. Um, let's go to uh, number two on page three. Number two on page three. This has produced a tyranny of language. Language is now viewed as manipulative. The emphasis is not upon technical language. Technical language seeks to take a complex idea and describe it simpler. That is shorter terms through technical knowledge or technical language. Rather, the emphasis is upon jargon. Jargon seeks to not communicate a simple idea by using longer, nondescript, and complex terminology. In other words, technical language tries to take something very complex and make it very simple to understand. Whereas jargon takes something simple and tries to make it very complex. And you say, now, who in the world would do that? Well, think with me a, a moment about legal jargon, legalese. The way contracts are written. Okay? That it takes a lawyer to understand it. It's intended to be confusing. It's intended to be obscure. It's intended to require you to get a lawyer so that you've got to pay the money and you've got to have a defense and we can argue about the technicalities of it. It is purposefully oblique. And that is happening more and more in more and more disciplines. And so, today, the person who communicates, quote-unquote, the best is the person who's the least understandable. It's like the person who stands back at the door and they've got this brand new seminary student 
who has just preached a sermon, and they leave, and, and the lady says to him, well, that was a marvelous sermon. I can tell you're really gifted. I didn't understand a word you said. Uh, but you may think that that is, is funny. It is to a degree. But you know, another interesting uh, sidelight is taking place. And that is in the Catholic Church, there is a real movement to bring the Latin Mass back. People want the Mass to be given in a language they don't understand just because of the experience. That there's something mystical about that. There's something wonderful about that. There, there is something higher about that. That we would rather hear it in a language we don't understand than have it communicated faithfully and accurately and simply to us. Let's go over uh, to uh, Roman numeral three. The effects of pluralism postmodern on contemporary evangelicalism. The effects of empirical pluralism. Empirical pluralism, remember, simply means pluralism that you can measure. Uh, pluralism that you can identify. Such as the Hispanic population is rapidly growing in the United States. You can see that. The effects of cherished pluralism. Okay? The idea that we value and appreciate Hispanics. See the effects of philosophical pluralism. So in this cherished pluralism, one of the effects that you can see is the Biofellowship Church now has a number of church plants that are targeting Hispanic individuals. We have uh, Spanish-speaking pastors pastoring these congregations. And we have just recently translated the Articles of Faith into Spanish, and the Biblical Principles for Living in Spanish. You can get them down in Spanish if you want. That was unheard of. Ten years ago. Now they exist. Was it unheard of ten years ago that there were Spanish-speaking people around? No. But now there is a desire to reach them with the knowledge that the best way to reach them is to reach them in their language. So that's one of the effects that is taking place. And then the effects of philosophical pluralism. And I'll stop here. The presentation of truth in postmodern physical awesome pluralism is corporate. That shouldn't be presented. It should be corporate. Confessional evangelicalism is greatly affected. Uh, confessional evangelical means that you give a confession. The Articles of Faith would be a confession. That would be a body of material held by a group. So the meaning of evangelicalism has gone out the window. It's lost. Who knows what that means? But here, I think, is the key for us, and that is the role of doctrinal statements has become irrelevant. Let me say that again, because it's terrifying to me. The role of doctrinal statements has become irrelevant. It's because of the way people understand truth. It's the way in which people respond to the written word. Let me give you a practical 
uh, illustration of this. One of my duties in the Biofellowship Church is I chair the Ministerial Candidate Committee. The Ministerial Candidate Committee is responsible for men who are coming from uh, and offering themselves to pastor in the Biofellowship Church. They can be people that are coming just out of seminary, or they can be people that are coming from other churches, but it is our, responsible, our responsibility to be sure, among other things, that they are in agreement with the Articles of Faith. Years ago, we just gave them a written exam. It became painfully apparent to us over a period of time that that no longer worked. That no longer worked. Uh, you couldn't just give a written exam and say, do you understand this and demonstrate you do and, and uh, are you in agreement with it, yes or no? Because we found an incredibly different mindset today. And that is that people would read a doctrinal statement from the perspective of, can I live with this? Can I accept this? Uh, can I buy into this? And if they could accept it, if they could buy into it, they would say, I'm in agreement. Somehow it misses their attention that it is not just, can you accept the doctrinal statement, but can we accept you? <laughs> can we live with you? Can we coexist in our beliefs? You see, it wasn't necessary in their mind that they had to agree with everything. Just what was important to them was what we said. And if what was important to them is what we said, then they would say that they're in agreement. And just gloss over the stuff that wasn't important to them. And it was a mind-boggling to them to realize that it was important to us. Oh, you, you care about that? You, you're interested in that? So... We've given up on, on the written exams. Now we ex examine men orally. We ask them to recite the Articles of Faith. And then we ask them to explain the Articles of Faith. And we have questions that make them explain it. And then we have very pertinent questions to see whether or not they really firmly hold to these things themselves. And it becomes a revelation, not just to us, but to them. To say, oh yeah, it does say that. Oh, yeah, I, I guess I don't agree with that. I haven't really thought about it. You know, we, we find that time and time again. Uh, so that this postmodern mindset has really rendered, as I say, doctrinal statements almost irrelevant. Uh, and the idea that, that you... The truth matters to you is foreign. I think the one that, that struck me the most, and I'll, I'll stop with this. The one that struck me the most was we had uh, a person apply to us that was a black pastor. We've had other people that are black pastors apply that have been accepted. This individual was not accepted. He was sure that the reason he was not accepted was because he was black. And he was sure that the reason that he was black and not accepted is because the committee was prejudiced. And he said, you're a bigot, you're prejudiced, he said to me. Because I said to him, your answers are not acceptable. I couldn't reason with him. I couldn't sit down and explain to him, this is what you said, this is what the doctrinal statement says. They don't agree. It became a personal issue. You don't like me because I'm black. 
No, I don't care what color you are. This is what you said. And he was going to sue me for racial prejudice. But fortunately, I knew some black brothers in the Philadelphia area that had been in the class with me uh, at Biblical. And I said, help. <laughs> and they contacted him. And they said, he's a good guy. He's, 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 not, he's not putting you down for this. And they had to explain to him about a doctrinal statement. And so, and so he backed off. But, but that's where we're at today. And it's, it's difficult. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your grace and goodness. Uh, help us, we pray. Uh, give us understanding. And then, Lord, as we look at your word, uh, give us insight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.